I'm James Gould, and this is The Recess Course. Today on the show, we have with us none other than Dr. George Kovach to talk with us about an approach to video laryngoscopy. So what are some of those subtle differences between video laryngoscopy devices, and what's a good optimal approach to using video laryngoscopy in your airway management? George is a professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine and Anesthesia here at Dalhousie University. He is the medical director for the Critical Care Transport Program, a trauma team leader, founder of the illustrious AIM Airway course, Airway Interventions and Management in Emergencies. He's an airway enthusiast, brisket connoisseur, one of my mentors, and I can proudly say a good friend of mine. Thanks for being on the show, George. Thanks for having me. So George, when we say VL, I think for us, that creates this image in our minds of a lot of different types of devices. Like that word VL to me means a lot of different things. I know it does to you as well. For some people, VL kind of just means the one modality that they might have at their institution or the only one that they have had experience with. Can you speak to some of those differences and like the importance of knowing the difference between the, the VL device that you're using? Yeah, so, so there's, there's heterogeneity amongst devices and there, there are essentially three broad classes. There's standard geometry Macintosh blade video laryngoscopes, there's hyperangulated video laryngoscopes, and then there's channeled video laryngoscopes that are also hyperangulated in terms of their, their blade shape. There's a different approach that is specific to that blade type. And historically, it, it based on when and how things came to market. So CMAC came to market with a Macintosh blade, and there's the name CMAC. Glidescope came to market initially with a hyperangulated blade. People will say, I'm going to use the Glidescope. They were often referring to a hyperangulated blade. And when people were referring to the CMAC, they were usually referring to a standard geometry or Macintosh type blade. What's important to recognize is that all of the, or the three big ones out there, so CMAC, Glidescope, and the McGrath, come in Macintosh standard geometry blade configurations and hyperangulated blade configurations. We need to follow up the term video laryngoscope, say, with, with what type of blade that we are using. The, the preference and, and the a majority of evidence is, is to use a, a Macintosh type video laryngoscope. I'm not really sure if that's ultimately true. In other words, down the line it, or whether this just reflects a learning curve, but there is no question that there's this different approach with using these different types of blades. Traditionally, the hyperangulated blade is considered a, a difficult airway blade. Um, and would be applied in, in scenarios where preemptively you think it's going to be a difficult airway or as a, as a, a, a scenario where you failed with a Macintosh standard geometry type blade and then you've backed off, you've, you're able to mass ventilate them in your second go, you're going to use a, a different type of blade based on what you discovered on that first pass. Right. So are you sort of dichotomizing this, these in terms of when to choose each one? Your standard approach is that you're going to go with standard geometry blade. However, if you are predicting that the patient may have what, like anterior anatomy, or is there any other predictors when you're looking at the patient or scenarios where you'd say, my primary choice is going to be hyperangulated because I predict that that might be what I need. And I predictably may fail with standard geometry and, and have to ultimately move to hyperangulated. 
Yeah, so there's two school of thoughts, and and people are are sometimes pretty regimented in, in this. So Brian Driver, which all of us know and, and respect, they're out of, of Hennepin in Minneapolis. He actually was a nice editorial in Annals where he makes the case for for always using a Macintosh standard geometry blade. And and the big advantage for that that's specific to it is first of all, it is a it is a a skill, a, a translatable skill that is not far off from from a, a direct laryngoscope. So again, if your if your video system fails and you still have a light, then you can still theoretically look in the mouth with that same type of blade and use it as a direct laryngoscope. So you're the, the option of looking on the screen and looking in the mouth. Secondly, the fact that it is a, a direct approach, it allows you to visually manage either on the screen or directly a soiled airway more effectively, which is not going to be uncommon in our, in our scenario. And then lastly, is that, that there's, there's a, a strong history and, and, and reasonable evidence to support bougie augmentation of, of standard geometry blades. So that's sort of the, in the package, why, why it's advocated to use that up front. And I, I, and I'm, that's, that's where my camp is. The other camp is, well, if you have a, a, a difficult airway blade, a hyperangulated blade, why not do difficult all the time? So why not just sort of apply that in all scenarios? Then they say, okay, it wasn't necessary. It wasn't particularly necessary for this scenario. A Macintosh type blade would have been, would have been just fine. But why would, why would we, you, you do that? And that's not an unreasonable perspective. The counter argument against that is, is it equally effective from a, from a soiled airway? We don't really know the answer to that. In, in the algorithms that we write, we write it that it's it's really up to the user. Yeah, that's awesome. I've always kind of framed the two different modalities or strategies in my mind as being one is more difficult to get a view, but easier to deliver a tube. And the other is a bit easier to get a view and more difficult to deliver a tube. And that being standard geometry being the former and hyperangular being the latter. I'm interested in your thoughts on on that because I think it's important for people to recognize, especially with hyperangulated, where getting a view may be easy, and that shouldn't be a reassuring thing for someone because there's a, a, a more difficult part about that strategy, which is which is delivering the tube. Can you speak to that? Yeah, and and, and oh, I've got tons of slides that 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 relate to that, and that that is the teaching. And the counter argument is is that once you learn how to deliver a tube properly with a hyperangulated blade, that it is different, but not necessarily more difficult as long as you know yeah. how to do it. Right. So, so I think that that's, that's, that's what we're starting to see in the literature. And I think that that gap is going to be there. What, what the problem is, is that when people are taking the different blade and using it, thinking that they're going to have the same pathway in terms of tube placement with the hyperangulated blade as they did with the standard geometry blade. And that is not the case. But again, if you preemptively know how to use that, it should be less of an issue. But to address your, your, your point, ideally what you want to do is you want to have a hole, right? And a tube that is straight and you're going to pop it right in there. We know that we have to work around anatomy and we have to displace the anatomy, 
And that's what we're doing with Macintosh standard geometry plates. We're displacing their anatomy. We're subluxing the, the, the mandible forward, getting the tongue out of the way. We're, we're getting down to the vollecula, engaging the, the medium glossoepiglottic fold and lifting that epiglottis out of the way. And then it's, it's a reasonably straight shot with a, a tube that is straight to cuff and then has a true hockey stick bend, which is about a 30 degree angle. And, and because of the fact that the angle is not so, so steep, the translation down the trachea is pretty straightforward. Now it still can get caught up anteriorly, but essentially that's what we've been used to. And that's what we do and we've had success with. So with a hyperangulated blade, there is, it is a see around the corner device. So when you look in the mouth, you are not going to see anything, right? You, you shouldn't see anything that you, that you recognize. It is seeing around the corner and what's in front of you in the screen is not in front of you in the mouth. And that's where I think people have difficulty because they'll see it on the screen and think it should be a straight shot. So what you do need to do is because a see around the corner device, you need to bend your tube with a, a bit more of an angle. And that angle is about 60 to 70 degrees to, to bring the tube to the glottic inlet. So, so when you do that, you can bring it to the glottic inlet, but you're going to be coming up to the, the glottic inlet. And if you go through it, you're potentially going to hit the anterior tracheal wall. Right. Ultimately, what you need to do is get it down the trachea, which is diving down to the chest. So you have more of an angle to come up to it and then an opposing angle, angle to get down. It's about managing that transition that you, that you have to, have to be careful with. And that's where it comes into about the concept of, of, of not being too close. And, and that's a bit of a misnomer here. And, and I said, if you drop in, particularly a D blade, which is the, the C-Mac hyperangulated blade, which only comes in one size and is, and is giant, you'll put that in and, and nine times out of 10, unless you're very careful, you're going to end up right on the glottic inlet and you will have this great big view and it looks wonderful. And you sort of say, geez, anybody should be able to, to manage that, but being too close means that your blade is actually probably tilting up the larynx and actually creating this opposing angle. Doesn't give you much maneuverable space. And uh, what you will see when you look through that, that triangle is you'll see the white and you'll actually sh see the cricoid ring of the anterior tracheal wall. And, and if you put something through that, you're going to hit that anterior tracheal wall. So you need to be able to manage that. And what we sort of said is to back away. And, and really it, it is, it is back away, but it's more of a derotation than a back away. Right. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is that my video, it's, it's looking down the long axis of the trachea, as opposed to looking up at the anterior tracheal wall. So that's what the not too close is, or really what it is, is a, is a derotation and backing off. And that derotation should be in a position where you see the epiglottis in the upper field of your view. That ensures that you're not too close, right? And, and once you do those two things is that you make sure your blade tip is in the vollecula and therefore you see the epiglottis and you derotate. So instead of seeing the anterior white wall of the trachea, see the black hole of looking down the long axis of the trachea, then the tube delivery is usually pretty straightforward. Nice.
Yeah, that's awesome. So I like the way you put that. It's more different, not more difficult. As soon as you know what you're doing, it just becomes another sort of part of your toolbox and managing various airways or things that you encounter. What are you doing with Mac blades right now? Initially, when years ago, when I started teaching AIM, we were doing direct laryngoscopy, always with a size four, because you could choke up and make it a size three. What are your thoughts these days on, on Mac three versus Mac four? Yes. So absolutely. There's hazards and benefits. I will tell you this is that I, I judge many studies that are published by the, the, the number of grade four views that people have. Grade four views are extraordinarily rare. In my career of over 30 years, I've seen one true grade four view yeah. and, and the same thing holds in the, in the OR and, and it, it's a, it's a, a very unusual event. The most common reason people are calling grade fours is they're in too deep. They're going in with a, a Mac four blade and they're jazzed and they're deep and they're just seeing pink, but it's got nothing to do with or anything other than a, a, a diving too deep with the blade and that they pull back, they'll see things that they recognize. The, the hazard is, is that when you're adrenalinized, unless you go in and deliberately do epiglottoscopy, just going in with the blade, compressing the tongue gradually until you see the epiglottis and then seating it in the volecula appropriately, which we call voleculoscopy, and then lifting to get your view laryngoscopy and then ultimately intubation what we 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 tend to do is, is dive and lift right and and with a four blade you're at high risk of, of diving and, and lifting and and creating an opening a very inviting opening that is the esophagus that can look remarkably like the glottic inlet, and it's otherwise been referred to as glottic impersonation. So there's, there's risk of, of one having this grade four view, which is not a grade four view at all. It's just that you are in the esophagus. There's a risk there that you're going to apply too much force in the wrong place distally, and you're going to, you're going to create this false glottic inlet. The other one is, is that these blades were designed so that the curvature, the natural curvature is, is over the tongue, right? And then, and then it engages the, the, in the molecular in the appropriate place. If you're using an oversized blade, then you're really only using the distal, say 50% of that blade and the conformance in that position, you might not get the, 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 the beneficial positioning that that blade was designed for. If you ask our colleagues in the OR, ask them how often they use a, 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 a four blade, it's rare, mm. right? It's, it's, it is rarely used. Match the device for the, the patient. The reason why we had, had suggested using a, a longer blade is because if you do truly have a, a epiglottis only view, Right. There's two things that you can do to manage that. One is to blindly place the bougie underneath it, or you, what you can do is you can drop down and take a Miller approach with that Macintosh blade and lift up the epiglottis purposely to get that view. So, so that is, that is, that is one of the major advantages of using an oversized blade. The question is, is that, and I think many people say the majority of the time you could actually do that with a three blade. And there's been more of a commentary of, of clinically experienced people 
that using an oversized blade with, with for example, the C-Mac, that people weren't necessarily getting the optimal views that they were hoping for. So we've backed off from that. And again, I think you can take it both ways. You can use an oversized blade, just beware of the risks, but in general, match the blade for the patient in a, in a size point of view. And the majority will be a three. Interesting. Everyone has different experiences with using all these different devices, different comfort levels. Something I've been thinking about lately a lot is context, not only patient context, environment context, but context in regards to the provider. And I wonder if there's a difference between the best modality for a specific situation and the best modality for a specific provider. In other words, that one's comfort level with a device, or maybe even just your department standard operating procedures, what you do most often, might influence or maybe should influence the choice of a particular modality such that someone's comfort level and skill with a less ideal modality for the situation may ultimately make that modality more ideal of a choice given the comfort level of the provider. Is that what's going to lead to better success? Imagine the patient with, with inline stabilization. If the provider's comfort level or standard operating procedure in their, say, emergency department is to do standard geometry video laryngoscopy, and they're getting ready to intubate this patient and, and someone in the room suggests to them that the better modality for that specific situation is hyperangulated because of the inline stabilization, I guess my question to you is, what's the right thing to do there? To choose the modality that's potentially better for the anatomy or to choose the modality that the provider is more comfortable with because that's what they're that's what they know the best. There was a great editorial published in Anesthesia last month and, and saying that the the, the 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 vocal cords aren't intubated by a laryngoscope. Uh, the vocal uh -huh. cords or or the, the trachea is intubated by a laryngoscopist. And so it's about about the skill and the hands that are gonna use that device as opposed to the the device. The the, the patient's being intubated by a provider and, and it's that provider that that should be the, the priority in terms of their experience. That their another device is not gonna compensate for for a a, a skill gap. So them using a, a Macintosh standard geometry blade, because that's what they have experience with, because they've used direct laryngoscopy in the past, and this is what they have. That's what they should go with. The, 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 the incremental benefit of a hyperangulated blade over a standard geometry blade really hasn't been sussed out that well in the literature to begin with. Um, mm. There are certain scenarios, so the, you referred to we all talk about the anterior airway. I don't know what the anterior airway means, right? It's people don't come in with, I've got an anterior airway, right? It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's difficult to get there. There are certain groups. So the obese patient, there is some, some reasonable evidence that a hyperangulated blade might be a, a better go-to and you can make a rationale for the trauma patient because you can't position them and positioning is key for successful Macintosh standard geometry blade laryngoscopy is so that theoretically that that is it those those scenarios the obese patient or in the in the patient that's immobilized it's it's a better match for that device but skilled good Macintosh video laryngoscopy is going to be your answer in the vast majority. And if the provider's skill set is there, that's what they should be doing. And they'll be able to augment that skill with something that's also equally familiar and available to them in a bougie. Yeah, well said. 
I want to change gears a little bit. We talked about standard geometry blades. We talked about VL blades. You've talked to me before about the Mac Plus blade. And so on the on the topic of VL, I don't think we complete this talk without discussing a little bit about what the heck that means and how it changes or maybe doesn't change what you do in area management. Yeah, so 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 we talked about three classes, so and I'm going to just, instead of saying Macintosh and standard geometry, talk about Macintosh. So Macintosh type, blurring the scope, hyperangulated and, 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 and channel. That's, that's one heterogeneity, but within the, the classes, there's also heterogeneity in terms of the Mac blades. So the, the camera position and blade shape are slightly different between the, the Mac blade that put up by the glide scope and the, and the C-Mac, which is also different than the McGrath Mac. So what I, I refer to as being a bit of a, of a, of a plus view, it means that ideally the scenario is, and this is true for the CMAC and we've studied this, is that the view on the screen and the view in the mouth are, are essentially identical. With the, the GlideScope Mac, there's, there's upwards of about a 10% difference. And that, that's in terms of the view on the screen is about 10% better than, than it is in the mouth. So it's, it's, it's a bit of a see around the corner type thing. And with the McGrath Mac, it's, it's even more. And, and where that might become a, an issue, it sounds like, oh, geez, 10% isn't that much. But if you're going to use something, for example, if you've got a, a bougie that's straight out of the package and just has that, that, that coup de tip, and you're, you're looking at the screen and you've got the view that you have, the true anatomy is actually a little bit different mm. and that you don't have that coup de tips, not going to be enough to get around that corner. And so you, you have to augment your bougie and, and, and that's what we've been doing is we use a pillow bend, which is just a sort of a, whether it's a pillow bend in terms of you just bending the, the bougie to get a bit of a curvature proximal to the coup de tip, or you strip it a little bit to just get a bit of additional curvature that will compensate for any type of difference that you're going to have. So in regards to CMAC, where it should be the same view, obviously in that scenario, you can use a straight out of the package bougie. You can also use a Pella bend presumably for that, like to make things yeah. simple. Is it just Pella bend for any, any standard geometry Mac? Yeah, I, I think it does add, add some value. It's just that it, it wasn't designed that way. No. As long as you can. So the other thing, important thing is to recognize that all, all bougies aren't created equal. So, so there's some bougies out there that have no memory, meaning that, that you try to bend them and they'll just flop back to having just their coup de tip. Majority ones that are on the market will retain a certain amount of memory. It's actually measured in terms of how long before it starts to straighten out. We don't really care about that, but because they will all stay for the minute or two that you need between it being out of the package, you making that bend and then you, you, you using that. But I, I'd agree. I, I think that, that it probably does even add value in some situations where you, you do have a, a, a lesser view because of their, their native anatomy. There might be some additional value to that pillow band. It just hasn't been studied. The, the bougie has been a traditionally as said, a straight until the coup de tip. The other really important thing is that people practice with this in their sim labs and they're using the same old bougie that's been used forever. 
and 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 all of those bougies are are curved so they they get yeah. used to using that and then they they get one that's straight out of the package they realize it's not the same yeah yeah great point i can say myself for sure i've been using the bougie as a primary intubating device as opposed to a difficult airway device or as it was classically i guess you know, developed to be used in the context of can you speak a little bit to that like what are your thoughts on on just a standard operating procedure, a bougie first technique or bougie as a primary intubating device, however you want to describe it. What are your thoughts there? Yeah. So the reason why I'm smiling is because you obviously know the answer to that. And we've been big, <laughs> big, big, big believers in this is that it, 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 it's three, two, one, right? Three things to do with two hands on, on first attempt, right? And those three things are, is to do a head lift, reach around ELM and grab a bougie. And that's what's optimized laryngoscopy. And you should be training to do that in, in all of that tube delivery in less than 30 seconds. And that should be your, 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 your standard approach. So again, whether you choose to use a stylet or choose to use a, a bougie, the, the most quoted evidence again, comes back to the beam trial that driver and, and their Minneapolis group did it at, at Hennepin, where they, again, they had a 98% first pass success rate with routine use of a bougie versus an 87% first pass success when using a stylet. And in patients that had difficulty, some features of anatomical difficulty, the difference was, was more significant favoring the routine use of a bougie. So the, the thing that I've said ever since that paper came out is that that's not about the bougie isn't a heat seeking missile. It, it's something that aug augments your primary approach and you should use liberally but you need to be trained to, to use it. You need to be able to train to do your three, two, one to get those 98% first pass success rates. So the follow-up trial that I was a guest sort of commentary on when it came out and I didn't know the results was, was the bougie trial, which was a multi-centered trial where they had seven or eight ICUs and seven or eights in there again randomized to routine use of a bougie versus a stylet. And there was no difference. And, and the, the, the three people that were asked to sort of comment on that when it was released in, in, in JAMA, people were asked is, okay, are, is this going to change your approach? Are you going to stop using a bougie? And, and a couple of people said, yes. And then a bunch of us said, absolutely not. And the reason why sort of, I say absolutely not is to me and, and my review of this paper is that again, if you take a bougie and give it to somebody. Right. And, and it's not part of their culture and training that, that it's very unlikely that it's going to add value. Right. But yeah. if it does, if, if it is part of your culture, part of your, your training and you train to do this three, two, one, it is going to improve your, your success without adverse event. That's a, a, a my strong feeling on that to say, yes, routine use of a bougie and that's standard yeah. operating procedure. Yeah, I think the culture is so important. Not necessarily, it shouldn't be just, are you a, bur a bougie as a primary intubating device institution or is that your standing operating procedure? It's the whole culture of getting your best view and then still using the bougie. Because you can imagine a scenario where you could get the bougie in to an airway view that was pretty good. Like not the best you could get, but it's pretty good. And you could still get the bougie into that. 
And I think that the trouble you run into there is if the culture that you're developing is just getting good enough views and then using the bougie, then that's that's actually a pretty big problem because you, what you don't want to do is continually practice getting good enough views. What you want to do is continually practice getting the best view and then yeah. also using a bougie. Yeah, I and mean, that's a big piece. Sam Campbell is is yeah. is is or bigger than I couldn't agree more. Yeah, you don't want to use it as a as a compensatory type of mechanism, right? You want to do optimized laryngoscopy and then augment it, augment that optimized laryngoscopy even even further, right? Yeah. So absolutely, that is the case. I, and an important point though is is that in the when the when the when the bean trial the original one came out classically the bougie was was a device that was used in an epiglottis only type of view and then we were advocating use it routinely because it is inexpensive you get you get familiar with it and you can employ it when you need to in more in more difficult situations but in the the incidence of grade three views was still relatively small and the big advantage actually that all of the statistical and, and clinically significant difference happened actually in the in the grade two views of the of the partial views where most people would say, well, geez, I've got a partial view of the cords. I can slip a, a tube in there. But that's where the real benefit came. It wasn't because they had a, a whack more of it wasn't because of the the grade three or epiglottis only views. And what happens there, and that's the basic principle, is you're putting a smaller object through that hole that you watch go in as opposed yeah. to the, the tube, when it's a partial view, as it approaches the glottic inlet, it blocks your view. And then that last little bit, you lose sight of the glottic inlet and you slip it into the goose, into the, into the esophagus. So its real value was in those views that many of us would say, well, you don't really need a bougie. Nice. What about a bougie for hyperangulated? I mean, I know you talked about how you would rig up your stylet for for success in hyperangulated laryngoscopy. And we talked about bougie first in standard geometry. What, where, where is your mind and what's your thoughts right now on bougie and hyperangulated? Yeah, so they've changed significantly. And I, I can't say that they, they, there's, there's evidence to support this. And there's some, 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 a few studies that are, that are, that have looked at this, but the same principle should apply, but the, the, really important caveat, and this is where I, many of us had had a lot of grief when people would describe using a bougie with a hyperangulated blade. One is this, they might've gotten used to doing that because they're working in sim labs and they're working with bougies that are shaped like this all the time <laughs> and, and they have success with it. But if you take a bougie out of the package, it's straight till an, an that coup d'etat tip, it cannot work with a hyperangulated blade out of the package. It cannot, because again, it will not manage that around the corner piece. So yeah. a bougie out of the package is, is not the right augmentation for, for hyperangulated video laryngoscopy intubation. However, if you shape your bougie appropriately, so it can go around the corner, it can be a reasonable adjunct for the same reason I just described in those partial views. So and, and this usually requires a little bit more than a pillow. And again, it depends how aggressive you are with your strip or how aggressive you are with your pillow bend, but really it's the distal third of the bougie that needs to be bent and call that a, a deliberate bend where somebody will, will almost, it'll be almost like a D where you'll, you'll hold, hold the, 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 the bougie in that distal portion is there and then you'll let go and it'll have this big curve. And that big curve is too much to use immediately, but it will correct itself. 
And then if you, if you use it and you keep anterior with that curvature looking in the mouth and then, and then transferring to the screen, that bougie will come up to the glottic inlet. Now, sometimes what can happen, it'll come up to the glottic inlet and that coude tip will get caught on the cricoid ring or on the anterior trachea. But again, there's ways to manage that with just rotation and it will, it will go down. So increasingly it is being used and, and think about it earlier on, you were talking about what do we, what's the ideal view with the hyperangulated video laryngoscopy? It's what we've referred to and studied as a deliberately restricted view. And a deliberately restrictive view is that derotation that we talked about or backing off from, from the glottis, right? So you are purposely getting a, a view that's sort of 50% of the, of, of the glottic inlets. So potentially the same hazard can happen when you approach the glottic inlet with your tube is that you lose that view at that point. So the, the, the principle of watching something smaller enter the glottic inlet and then falling with your tube should still apply. It's just that there can be some challenges with that bougie getting caught up anteriorly that you do have to manage. Right. Awesome, man. Amazing. Listen, these are just such valuable pearls and, and I think we covered everything that I was hoping to cover. Any last words of wisdom that uh, you want to impart on, on the listeners about VL? Yeah, I guess in closing, video laryngoscopy is here to stay. And what we're seeing is, is that uh, increasing first pass success without adverse events, rates that are almost routinely in, in higher volume places are, are over 90%. And the, the, the literature and momentum of that literature is, is supporting the use of, of video laryngoscopy over direct laryngoscopy. And it's also addressing the, the issue of that heterogeneity in terms of, of comparing apples to apples in terms of device types, when we're comparing to direct laryngoscopy, comparing a Mac video laryngoscope to Macintosh direct laryngoscope versus comparing a hyperangulated video laryngoscope to direct laryngoscopy. So we are seeing that literature, but up until now. There has been no prospect of randomized trial comparing the two until the device trial. Hmm. Now the device trial is, is in the midst of, of recruiting. It's a multi-center trial of, of ICUs and, and EDs in which they are randomizing to direct laryngoscopy versus, versus standard geometry video laryngoscopy. And, and this will be the, the first prospect of randomized trial that we're, we're hoping is, is, is going to provide additional evidence to support the use of these, these devices routinely, which we're, we're seeing pretty well universally around the world in resourced places. Awesome. Well, listen, man, thanks for so much for being on the show. It's been awesome. I've learned a ton and we'll hopefully get you back on sometime soon. Thanks, man. Have a great day. You too.